As John Ledyard put it to Thomas Jefferson on March 19, 1787, quote, I am as sure that it is impossible, without some kind of soul made express for the purpose, that an obscure citizen in such a situation can be more grateful than I am. End quote. And grateful was the ever-optimistic outlook of a man who fought to get into such a situation, as he puts it. Quote, I have hitherto been from England through Denmark, through Sweden, through Swedish Lapland, Swedish Finland, and the most unfrequented parts of Russian Finland to this aurora borealis of a city. He writes strikingly of St. Petersburg, Russia, founded by Tsar Peter the Great in 1703, and a symbol of the Russian Empire, of which... John Ledyard would have many thoughts. Quote, I cannot give you a history of myself since I last saw you, or since I wrote you last. However abridged, it would be too long. Upon the whole, mankind have used me well. End quote. But he assures Jefferson, however, quote, I have as yet reached only the first stage of my journey. End quote. Welcome to Expeditions, a podcast around Lewis and Clark. We explore the history and historiography of the expedition one day at a time. We are everywhere at Expeditions Pod, social media, Patreon if you want to support the show, and our website. You are currently at the beginning of Mile Marker 2, episode This Aurora Borealis of a City. John Ledyard was born in Groton, Connecticut in 1751. His father was a ship's captain in the heyday of the West Indian trade on the eastern seaboard. His father, however, died when he was 11 years old and thus began his peripatetic journey toward the two-year-old Dartmouth College in 1772. However, he was more drawn to the woods and rivers of the country and the indigenous people that resided in them. His gravitation toward becoming a minister, no doubt to facilitate a career in the wilderness, was at best half-hearted. He would drop out soon after. And a month before the shots at Lexington and Concord, Ledyard headed to London, enlisting first in the British Army and then, fortuitously, in the Navy. From Gibraltar, he would write, quote, I allot to myself a seven years ramble more, although the past has long since wasted the means that I possessed. End quote. The state of Ledyard's finances would become a consistent theme throughout the remainder of his life. That being said, Ledyard's first biographer, Jared Sparks, in his 1827 Life of John Ledyard, sums up the young man with, quote, The wholesome maxim of providing for the morrow rarely found a place in his ethics or his practice, and as he never allowed himself to anticipate misfortunes, so he never took any pains to guard against them. End quote. On July 12, 1776, as several frigates sailed up the Hudson River, firing upon George Washington and his troops in New York City as more of a show of force than anything, John Ledyard sailed off in the HMS Resolution on Captain James Cook's third and final voyage. He and the crew would be gone for over four years as the Resolution and Discovery sailed under the Cape of Good Hope towards Polynesia, where Ledyard would be tattooed in Tahiti, closely placed reddish-brown dots, cited by some as the first Euro-American to be inked. Uh, he would be introduced as such by Thomas Jefferson at the court in Versailles in Paris later on in our journey. From there, they would head north to the Pacific Northwest, towards Alaska and the Bering Sea, 
though winter pushed them from their goal of finding the mythic Northwest Passage that we'll talk about later. Faithfully, they'd sailed to the Sandwich Islands, to Hawaii, to Kealakekula Bay. If Ledyard was with Cook as he tried to kidnap Kelani Opu'u, the king of Hawaii, which is unlikely based more on conjecture than anything, or if he was on the opposite side of the bay repairing a mast, which is more probable, or he was aboard a ship watching through a spyglass, which is maybe the most likely, we'll never really know for sure. However, he was crucial in keeping the crew together after James Cook's death. They sailed back north, landing on the Kamchatka Peninsula where Russians assisted in repairing the ship before it took a final crack at the Northwest Passage. Still mythical. They'd followed the east coast of Siberia, China, and Indonesia across the Indian Ocean. The ships arrived after news of Captain Cook's demise. It proved to be a somber apex to this age of discovery, ending on October 4th, 1780. As a member of the British Navy, he was then sent to occupied Long Island in December 1782. He'd defect from the Navy and head toward Hartford, where he would spend the winter writing a journal of Captain Cook's last voyage to the Pacific Ocean in the years 1776, 1777, 1778, and 1779. Though James King, who was commanding the ship with John Gore after Cook's death, had collected for the Crown all of the officers' journals in the Macau Harbor, it appears that he didn't catch them all. An anonymous account had been published a year after their return, attributed to Lieutenant John Rickman, as well as accounts from Heinrich Zimmermann, which was published in Germany, as well as William Ellis, a surgeon aboard the Discovery. As Ledyard gave up his journal like the rest, his account has segments lifted from the existing oeuvre, namely Rickman's account. Its value wasn't so much the chronology or the blurring of Ledyard's role in the expedition's more famous moments, namely Cook's End, but his insights and descriptions only he could provide, especially on the Pacific coast, in and above Nootka Sound, of native peoples and of the extensive fur trade. His journal, published in 1783 by Nathaniel Patton, is also a landmark for American copyright. Upon completion of his work, he would petition the state of Connecticut for trademark protection, and they passed an act for the encouragement of literature and genius, the first general copyright law in the United States. Incredibly, it only protected for 14 years and allowed for a single renewal. Can you even imagine? A federal law wouldn't be passed until 1790. Stephen D. Watros emphasizes the impact that the Pacific Northwest had on John Ledyard. Quote, in this visit lay the seed of two ambitions which dominated the rest of his life, the dream of setting up a fur trading post and the crossing of the North American continent." End quote. His first attempt to plant a seed was in the financing of Robert Morris, who recognized the profits to be made from the fur trade, though this would fall through, the first of many disappointments for Ledyard. As American shipping was in its infancy, Ledyard headed back to Europe in June of 1784 to sell the Pacific Coast potential rewards and look for his next chapter. Three years later, the Columbia would be the first U.S. ship to set sail to the Pacific Coast, though it wouldn't be until Astor's American Fur Company in 1811 that the profits would be fully realized. By 1785, John Ledyard was in Paris. It is a cloudy day with me, he'd write at the time. However, my hobby tells me it will be fair weather tomorrow, and I believe it, because I wish it. Right away, he would meet John Paul Jones, though 
he would be disappointed again when Jones joined Jimmy Page after he left the Yardbirds and formed Led Zeppelin. Uh, that doesn't sound right. Uh, I mean, he met John Paul Jones, father of the American Navy, and in Jones, Ledyard found somebody with a kindred spirit, at least at first. They worked out the commissioning of boats, the commencement of a factory on the Pacific coast to collect furs, Jones trekking across the Pacific to sell furs, and profit. The plans for a small stockade and 20 soldiers on hand resembled Lewis and Clark's Fort Clotsop more than anything. Ledyard felt this would take roughly seven years, about the length of a good ramble. But as Jones left the infectious Ledyard, his enthusiasm cooled as reality took hold. A major expedition had left France that August, which scuttled the prospects of other excursions. Ledyard lamented, quote, I see a great deal, and I think a great deal, but derive little pleasure from either, because I am forced into both, and am alone in both. Though he wouldn't be alone forever. There was a new American minister in Paris, replacing Papa Franklin, as the French called him, according to Ledyard. Thomas Jefferson would inherit John Ledyard from Papa Franklin and would soon become a friend. Quote, almost an inmate of my house while there, he would tell Ledyard's biographer, Jared Sparks, later. Ledyard was also friends with Lafayette, Vergennes, and Abbe du Aubry. It was here, more than likely, that Ledyard floated his ideas for the settlement of the Pacific coast, though when it shifted from sailing to traversing two continents can't be known for certain. Of these Americans in Paris, Ledyard would write, quote, Mr. Jefferson is an able minister, and our country may repose a confidence in him, equal to their best wishes. Whether in public or private, he is in every word and every action the representative of a young, vigorous, and determined state. His only competitors here, even in political fame, are Vergennes and Lafayette. In other accomplishments, he stands alone. The Marquis de Lafayette is one of the most growing characters in the kingdom. He has planted a tree in America and sits under its shade at Versailles. End quote. Every letter Ledyard wrote, he would profess his admiration, his love for Lafayette, promising that, quote, if I find in my travels a mountain as much elevated above other mountains as he is above ordinary men, I will name it Lafayette, end quote. However, like John Paul Jones, gauging Jefferson's interest, especially compared to the diligence he would give Meriwether Lewis, is difficult. No one doubted Ledyard's sincerity, nor his fortitude, his manliness. Jefferson would write Lafayette blandly, quote, I believe him to be an honest man and a man of truth. To all this, he adds just as much singularity of character and of that particular kind, too, as was necessary to make him undertake the journey he proposes. End quote. That particular kind is very important. If Ledyard was part genius and part moongazer, as Bernard DeVoto wrote, outside of the mirror image of Jefferson, it's clear why those with two feet on the ground, if you will, couldn't fully engage with a character like John Ledyard. And even when he did meet his equals, in Jefferson, sure, but there was also an American, Major Langhorne, who was described as, quote, a very good kind of man and a very odd kind of man, who would end up rebuffing Ledyard after he was asked to come to Russia with him, for he had his own rambles to take, and fitting into other people's molds was not Langhorne's strong suit, nor Ledyard's, nor Jefferson, for that matter. 
So Jefferson proved tepid, though lent his name as far as Ledyard could go. He pressed the Russian government, namely Catherine the Great, to issue Ledyard a passport, as well as provided, along with Lafayette, a letter of introduction. But as the days turned to weeks to months, Ledyard grew impatient as well as poorer, and he wrote in April 1786, he, quote, shall not be perfectly at ease till I have been introduced to the Empress, end quote. In the meantime, he traveled out to London, where he assigned himself to another crew that was headed out on commercial prospects to the Pacific Northwest and agreed to let him bum a ride to the coast. However, just as the ship had left the Thames, it was ordered back to port. Another blow for our man. He wrote his family of his misfortune, quote, In short, everything, all my little baggage shield, buckler, lance, dog, squire, and all gone. I only am left. Left to what? To some riddle I'll warrant you, or, at all events, I will not warrant anything else. My heart is too much troubled at this moment to write you, as I ought to do. I will only add that I am going in a few days to make the tour of the globe from London East on foot. I dare not write you more, nor introduce you to the real state of my affairs. Farewell. Fortitude. Adieu. End quote. In short, thanks to the eminent Joseph Banks, who... Ledyard had traveled with on Cook's final voyage, along with Dr. William Hunter, geologist James Hall, and American Colonel William Smith, who was John Adams' son-in-law, among others, a subscription was raised for John Ledyard to depart for Russia. While he would cobble together some legitimacy as he got to St. Petersburg, the subject of his passport and the shifting geopolitical moments day by day, which Lewis and Clark would also experience, would come to haunt him in time. Ledyard left London in December of 1786. He'd meet Major Langhorne in Copenhagen, expending a lot of needed time and money before heading to Stockholm, crossing the Gulf of Bothnia off the Baltic Sea. Jared Sparks notes in his 1827 biography, during the summer, one could take a boat across the Gulf to Turku, also known as Abo, Finland, hopping the Åland Islands, basically island to island. While during the winter, if the Gulf was frozen, one could get across the Gulf by sled, though at best one could make it about 30 miles before the ice thinned. So it was a dangerous trek either way and relied on hopping island to island as far as one could go. The famed writer Asser B describes a winter trek of 1799 in the same area and speaks about the undulating ice floor swaying in the water underneath quote it was an immense chaos of icy ruins presented to view under every possible forma and embellished by superb stalactites of a blue green color end quote as the gulf was too warm but the icy ruins too perilous to sail through ledyard trying not to lose an entire winter so close to saint petersburg opted for the next best option, a 1,200-mile trek around the Gulf by traveling north to Torina, quote, afoot and alone, without money or friends, on a road almost unfrequented at that frightful season, end quote.
but he made it. He arrived at St. Petersburg sometime in March, enough time to meet Dr. George Pallas, Prussian zoologist and botanist and explorer himself, a tutor to Catherine's children, whom he mentions to Jefferson on the 19th. Quote, I dined today with Dr. Pallas, professor of natural history, etc., etc., an accomplished Swede. My friend has been through European and Asiatic Russia. I find the little French that I have of infinite service to me. I could not deal without it. It is a most extraordinary language. I believe that wolves, rocks, woods, and snow understand it, for I have addressed them in it, and they have been very complacent to me. But I dined in a shirt I had worn for four days. I have but two, and I suppose when I write you next, I shall have none. End quote. From Dr. Pallas, he would be led to believe that he could expect a royal passport, though that too would be shrouded in uncertainties. His efforts with the British and French ministers would be unsuccessful, but he would eventually get enough paperwork to get him along. So it was to be another long wait for John Ledyard. By the time that Jefferson received his letter in Bordeaux on May 25th, Ledyard was still a week away from leaving St. Petersburg for the East. As John Paul Jones was engaging with John Ledyard, Thomas Jefferson had a mission for him. Hearing of France sending two vessels into the South Sea, he told John Jay in August 1785 that, quote, I desired him, if he could not satisfy himself at La Orient of the nature of this equipment, that he would go to Brest for that purpose, conducting himself so as to excite no suspicion that we attended at all to this expedition. His discretion can be relied upon, and his expenses for so short a journey will be a trifling price for the satisfaction of the point, end quote. Jefferson was skeptical of the motives of this expedition. Quote, they give out that the object is merely for the improvement of our knowledge of the geography of that part of the globe, and certain it is that they carry men of eminence in different branches of science. Their loading, however, is detailed in conversations, and some other circumstances appeared to me to indicate some other design, perhaps that of colonizing of the western coast of America, or perhaps only to establish one or more factories there, for the fur trade, end quote. While Jones wouldn't learn much, was Thomas Jefferson's suspicion that there was more at stake, his general distrust towards the intentions of other countries, a feeling that he would nurture until the end of his days, really, effectively produce a Ledyard in the same way that Alexander Mackenzie will later produce a Lewis and Clark? Jefferson's uneasiness over this French business faded, and as Donald Jackson notes, we have no indication that he ever read that expedition's journals or he ever mentioned it again in his correspondence following 1788. However, in St. Petersburg, the Gulf of Finland at our back, we'll return to John Ledyard's letter one last time, as there are two threads that we're going to sink into during this week. Quote, there was a final report a few days ago, of which I have heard nothing since, that the French ships under the command Captain La Perouse have arrived at Kamchatka. There is an equipment now on foot here for that ocean, and it is first to visit the northwest coast of America. It is to consist of four ships. This and the equipment that went from here 12 months since by land to Kamchatka are to cooperate in the design of some sort in the northern Pacific Ocean. The Lord knows what, nor does it matter what with me, nor need it with you or any other minister or potentate southward of 50 degrees of latitude. I can only say that you are in no danger of having the luxurious repose of your charming climates disturbed by the second incursion 
of either Goth, Vandal, Hun, or Scythian. End quote. If Jefferson had anything to worry about from La Perouse or Catherine's proposed expedition under Englishman Joseph Billings, only time would tell. <laughs>